Well, for those who may have missed the announcements, um, I'm Mark. I'm the pastor here at our Syracuse campus. Excited to um, see you all here today. We're back in the book of Mark. We're continuing in our series through that. Um, And I just want to say, if you have your Bibles, you know, I I hope that you would bring them and and open them and and read through as we're going through this stuff. Or if you have the, the app up on your phone, Pull that up and, and read through. It's, it's just good to have that in front of you as we talk through this stuff. And, and also, I say this every time that I, that I teach, we have free Bibles in the lobby on the welcome table. If, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, or if you just didn't bring yours today and you would like that, feel free to stand up right now. Nobody will look at you weird or anything, but go ahead and, and grab one and bring it in. Um, we're, we're in chapter 11 today. So we're going to be finishing up chapter 11 and beginning chapter 12. Um, now last week, we, if you guys were here, I, I hope you, you were and you heard about uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree, this really kind of odd story. Um, he curses this fig tree that's not bearing fruit. It was, it was representative of the, the leaders of Israel, this, the, the religious leaders of Israel, and, and uh, that's what the, the fig tree was representing. And, and then it we also t- learned about Jesus going into the temple and, and flipping over tables, chasing out people who were basically using the, the temple as a marketplace, as a means of just <laughs> making profit. Um, it, was a, it was a really interesting lesson last week. And when we read about that, I, I know sometimes we read that and we, see, we, we think, this sounds a little harsh coming from Jesus, doesn't it? Um, that Jesus would treat people like that. Um, we don't think of Jesus like that typically. In, in fact, especially a very common thought about Jesus, especially by people who don't know their Bible very well, is they would mistake Jesus as simply just a nice guy who went around healing people and, and teaching some good life lessons, right? Um, but Jesus, God in the flesh, he didn't, he didn't come down to earth to be a nice Mr. Rogers. That wasn't who Jesus was really was. He came on a mission. Maybe you've heard him referred to as the Lion of Judah before. That's, that's a title that he's called. See, and part of his mission was to call out the religious leaders of Israel, to call them out because they were in positions of authority. They were responsible for the spiritual well-being of the entire nation. The religious leaders were supposed to have spiritual authority over the people, directing them to live God-honoring lives. But they were failing in that. Rather than, than um, leading people to honor God and to love God and to love other people, they, they really were leading them to honor um, themselves. They were leading them to honor uh, rules and, 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 and laws. And, and really, the religious leaders were elevating themselves because of it. Because they were determined that, that following strict rules and, and, and these laws were what made you holy. And so they really elevated themselves that way. Um, so they were teaching these people to worship rules instead of worshiping God. And so they were failing in what they were supposed to do. They had, in Jesus' time, the religious leaders, they had abused the authority that they've been given. Authority that, that they'd been given by God himself. And Jesus is livid. He's livid by the way they've exploited this authority. So is, is Jesus a kind and, and gentle man? 
yes, of course he is. We see it all the time. I mean, he's compassionate. He is kind. But he's also a ruler. He's the king of kings. And he's a, he's a warrior, too, Jesus is. And every time we see Jesus react harshly to people, um, it's almost always towards these religious leaders. Every time we see him lashing out, it's towards these religious leaders because their authority comes from him. They're supposed to be acting on his behalf. And he's come to call them out. So this morning we're going to be talking about that word. You've already heard me saying it a few times now, authority. This word authority, it's not a word that many of us like, right? (laughs) It just gives us a bad taste in our mouths, doesn't it? This word authority. Um, But we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about where authority comes from, okay? And like I said, I know most of us really hate that word. We really hate that word authority. Um, And we especially don't like to submit to authority. Uh, I know that the youth are in here today, right, because we don't have youth class. It's the first Sunday of the month. Um, And how many of you teenagers here like submitting to authority? Raise your hands. That's exactly what I thought. Exactly what I thought. And guess what? I can tell you everybody here knew that. Because we've all been teenagers, and we all hated it just as much as you do. But I, I really think that maybe none of us ever really fully grew out of that teenage rebellion. I think we all tend to push back against authority. Even in adulthood, we still push back against it. We don't like being told what to do, right? I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. But God is a God of order, okay? And order requires submission to authority, which is why God initially set up the law of Moses and established spiritual leaders for his people, the nation of Israel. Um, but here, here's the question for the, for the day, okay? Is spiritual authority a thing anymore? We, we know, we read about it in the Bible, right? We read about it especially in the Old Testament, but is this even really a thing anymore? Does spiritual authority really exist anymore? See, there's this common misconception that when Jesus came, he, he did away with all the old ways, all of the old covenant, like, like the law of Moses and religious organization. But Jesus himself, he was very, very clear. He said, he, he said it himself that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The only things Jesus came to abolish were sin and death. That's what he came to do away with. For people who put their faith in him, he came to abolish sin and death. He didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to do away with authority. Jesus came to free us from sin and death and then to establish his authority. Jesus came to establish his authority. And the religious leaders don't like how Jesus is challenging their authority, their authority that they've been abusing And they especially don't like it after the behavior that we saw him exhibit in the temple last week. Flipping over tables and chasing people out. So let's start reading in chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27. It says, again they entered Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, 
and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? The priests, the teachers, and the elders. We see three distinct groups here. Now, these three distinct groups make up the Sanhedrin, okay? The Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish Jewish council in the first century. These are the people who are challenging Jesus for chasing people out of the temple, demanding him to explain where his authority to do this came from. See, the Sanhedrin were given authority over the Jewish people by Rome. The Roman authorities had had given them that authority. Um, And they they had this authority over religious matters as well as political matters. So they were kind of like this, I mean, the highest authority that there was in the Jewish nation. Now notice that Jesus isn't coming directly to them to challenge them, to confront them, right? They're coming and challenging him as Jesus and his disciples are walking through the temple area, it says. Jesus had already established his authority the previous day when he chased everyone out. He had already claimed authority. So the religious leaders, they come and they confront and challenge Jesus because they are actually rejecting his authority. They reject it. They're rejecting the very God who gives them authority. Maybe unknowingly, maybe maybe knowingly, but they're rejecting his authority. Jesus, he's proclaimed his deity over and over throughout his ministry. They know that he's claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He's not only healed people and and performed all these miracles, he's forgiven sin, which only God can do. He said, before Abraham was, I am, taking the very name of God on himself. They know that he's claimed to be God in the flesh, God the Son. And Jesus, really, he's done nothing but prove it over and over and over again. He's well known. We all know about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I mean, he was known. And so the Sanhedrin know who he is. They know who he's at least claiming to be. But the pride of these religious elites, it prevents them from recognizing Jesus' true identity and, and submitting to him like all of his followers do. Because of their refusal to recognize Jesus, he answers their question with a question of his own, we're going to see. And while it may seem like he's kind of deflecting or something by refusing to answer uh, their question, we're going to see that the answer to their questions actually are found in the question that, that he's going to be asking. So he says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. See, Jesus is trying to lead them to the truth of who he is and where his authority comes from with this question. He's trying to direct them in the right right area. See, if they say that John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, they admit that, basically admit that he was a prophet, they would have to accept everything that John taught about Jesus. They would have to admit that Jesus must be the Son of God and that he held all authority. That would be an admission that they would have to make. But they don't want to publicly declare that John's authority was simply human either. And here's why. 
says they talked it over among themselves. said, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus has exposed them, right? The religious leaders, they're coming to Jesus and they're asking these questions, uh, but they're not really seeking truth. They're trying to trap him. Their questions are meant to trick Jesus, trap him into saying something that would give them reason to attack and accuse him in front of the people. Jesus knows their intentions aren't really to seek truth, which is why he didn't bother answering their direct questions. He's not playing their game. And there's really a practical lesson to be learned here, too, from Jesus about the way he responds here. It isn't always advantageous to, to answer questions, you know, when people are just demanding answers um, to some difficult questions. When their goal isn't really to seek truth, when their goal is just to argue, sometimes it's not really worth our time. Sometimes asking them questions first can help reveal where they're, where they're, where they're headed with their questioning, reveal their real intentions. People who have no interest in seeking truth aren't, aren't really worth the time arguing with. It's just not. It's a waste of time. And with their answer, the religious leaders have revealed their intentions. They had no interest in really trying to, to understand where Jesus' authority came from. They didn't really care. They simply wanted to trip him up. So if we read on into chapter 12, and Jesus began teaching them with stories. He said, a man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. See, throughout the Old Testament, this, this is going to be common knowledge, a vineyard was used as a symbol for the nation of Israel, or, or for God's people. That was a, that was a common use of this, this symbol. This would have been recognized and understood by everyone that Jesus is teaching here. And, and this idea of, of landowners um, leasing land to tenants was also a common practice in Jesus' day. See, this is how Jesus taught. That's what was, is so amazing about the way Jesus teaches is he, really, he wants to relate things the way that people are going to understand to everyday people. And that's, that's what's amazing about him. He, he's not trying to be this high-level preacher. He's trying to give them simple examples of things that they'll understand. Okay, so that's what's going on here. So at the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed, until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. Now, who are, who are the servants here in this story? These are all representing different, different people, right? The servants are representative of the Old Testament prophets sent by God to call the people back to repentance. Now, maybe, maybe some of you here aren't as familiar with the Old Testament. Let me just 
break it down for you, okay? Here's, here's really the, the main theme of, of the Old Testament. God raises up this great nation of Israel, okay? and then he ends up rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt, um, brings them to the promised land so that they will be this great nation that will re- reflect his glory to the rest of the world. That was God's plan, his call for Israel. But what we read, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you're going to read that throughout their history, after the exodus from Egypt, Israel continually goes through these periods where they, they turn away from God. Um, they, 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 they submit to false gods or they do what was right in their own minds, is what it says in the Bible. They turn away from God and, and what happens is, is God, out of his love for them, sends a prophet to come and call them back to repentance. And sometimes they do. Sometimes that, that prophet's able to do that. And sometimes the people reject the prophet. In fact, most of the time, if you, if you read the Old Testament and you read these stories, most of the time, the people end up rejecting the prophet that God sent. They reject him. They're rejected, abused. They have their lives threatened. Sometimes these prophets were killed by their very own people for calling out their sin for calling them back to repentance, for calling them back to, to, to honoring God. Now, we don't have prophets today like the Old Testament prophets um, because here, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So we can see that, that Jesus really is the final prophet. So how does God call people to repentance today? Well, he has his word, the Bible, right? We have that. And he has his church. The hands and feet of Christ. The church. I know that that's an unpopular thought, that as Christ's church, we should call people back to repentance, that we should call out sin. That's not a popular idea in today's culture, especially. But if we don't lead people to truth and love, who will? Who will? There aren't Old Testament prophets out there doing this kind of work, because that's our job now as the church. Many believers who have gone before us have, have laid down their lives in, in taking a stand for truth and doing this very thing that we're called to do. And will the world despise us for it if we do that? Of course. Of course they will. As Jesus said, though, they hated me and so they will hate you. A world opposed to Jesus will be just as opposed to all who proclaim faith in Christ and who stand for truth and who are willing to call out sin. And this story that Jesus is sharing, it tells exactly that. The son in this story is representative of Jesus himself. Let's see what they do. The tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. The farmers, representing the religious leaders, reject the son, and kill him. Jesus right here is prophesying exactly 
what's about to happen. The religious leaders will give Jesus over to be crucified. The farmers plan to kill the son to take the estate away completely from the landover, from the landowner. Think, think of what that implies. What implication is that? They're trying to take away God's people, trying to take Israel away from God's authority so that they can have the ultimate authority. That's exactly what they try to do. They eventually have Jesus crucified, try to destroy his followers because they want to have authority. They don't really want their Messiah. They want to rule themselves without God. I would ask, do you think that our world operates any differently today? We live in a world in opposition to God. Our world today rejects God the same way people did back then, the same way religious leaders rejected Jesus. People who reject God in our world today want to be their own gods. I know that's exactly who I was before knowing Jesus. I meet a lot of people who share the same thought patterns that I do. I run into people who, who aren't believers, um, who don't really want to be believers. They want to be able to justify living the way that they want to live. Um, see, I, I claim that I believe in a God, that I, I believed in God, okay? Um, but I made up who God was in my own mind. Realistically, I made up who I wanted God to be to be able to justify living the way that I wanted to live, to be able to justify my sin so I didn't have to repent of things. A God who only considered things sinful that I considered sinful. That was the God that I made up. I was my own God, and, and, and I know I, I meet people all the time, like I said, who, who have this same idea that they're going to make up their own idea of God. And really, they're just being their own God is what's happening. They're claiming Godship themselves by doing that. That's how so many people in our world today are. You can't claim to believe in the one true God and then proceed to instill your own opinions and morality into him. That's not the way it works. God isn't a -a Build-A-Bear. If God is God, then you are not. And his ways are higher than your ways. Otherwise, he would not be God. He wouldn't be higher than us. So reading on, Jesus said, What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. God will use everything for his purpose. He will. He will use everything. Even wicked men who crucified the Son of God were being used to accomplish accomplish the mission of the Messiah. They didn't even know it. They're rejecting God, and at the same time, he's using them. The passage here that Jesus is quoting from is in Psalm 118, known as the Hosanna Psalm. During Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we read about a couple weeks ago, the people were, they were quoting from this very psalm. What we see this story laying out is that God will reject those religious leaders who rejected Jesus. And the vineyard will be given over to others. 
It's given over to all those who put their faith in Jesus, Christ's church. And Jesus is the cornerstone of it all. The stone that the builders rejected, the religious elite that they rejected, he has now become the cornerstone of the new kingdom. He is the cornerstone that joins everyone together. Jews and Gentiles, everyone is welcome in God's kingdom. But this parable is condemning to the religious leaders, isn't it? It's condemning to these guys who are challenging Jesus right now. See, the religious leaders, after hearing this story, they wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. See, the story was a warning to the religious leaders. Jesus is warning them. He's giving them a chance to repent, to come to the truth. And they knew it. They knew that he was calling them out. They knew that they were the wicked farmers in this story. This is their opportunity to repent and accept Jesus, but what do they do instead? They reject him. They choose destruction. Jesus wants everyone to come to salvation. Even these religious elite, he wanted them to come to salvation. He did. He doesn't desire for anyone to suffer eternal separation. But he puts the decision before each one of us. And the decision is simply whether you want to be the Lord of your own life or you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life. That's the simple decision that he puts before us. One choice leads to unending peace and joy and the other leads to unending suffering apart from God. So back to that initial question that we, that we asked at the beginning. Is spiritual authority a thing anymore? Yes. Yes, it most definitely is. Someone has authority in your life. Somebody does. And if it's you, then you're rejecting Jesus' authority. Just like the farmers in the story and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Now, it's easy to say that we put our faith in, in Jesus. It's easy to say, hey, yeah, I, I claim Jesus. I, I, I claim that grace. But we should challenge ourselves by asking if we are really making him the Lord of our lives. Are we submitting to everything that Jesus taught? Do we submit to everything that God has said in his word? What do you do when you come across something in the Bible that that challenges the way that you want to think about something, or when it challenges something that you want to do? Or what about when a figure of spiritual authority in your life um, challenges you in a particular area? There are plenty of positions of spiritual authority. Okay? We, have, we have pastors and elders, but every home has a spiritual leader as well. I hope that our, our youth here understand what the Bible has to say about submitting to authority in your home, honoring your father and mother, and, and recognizing their spiritual leadership over you. And this is, a, this is a huge responsibility. Anybody who holds spiritual leadership, it's not something that, as Jesus said, that, like the world does, it's not meant to lord over people, but it's meant to be a servant. 
It's meant to put these people above yourself, honestly, that their needs go above yours. You're responsible for these people. That's what spiritual authority really is. It's a, it's a huge responsibility, a huge responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. See, being a spiritual leader, it's a serious responsibility. It says here that every spiritual leader is accountable to God for those under them. We're all going to, every spiritual leader, we're, we're going to answer to God for all those people underneath us. So ask yourself, are you submitting to spiritual authority? Or do you rebel against it? Because as it says here, that wouldn't be for your benefit. It's for your benefit. It's for your benefit to submit to authority. And I can promise you that it really, it really is. I know I've experienced it in my own life. Being the Lord of my own life led to destruction. Not just eternal destruction, but man, so much destruction here in, in my life. In my earthly life here. Being the Lord of your own life is a much heavier burden than you realize. I can promise you that. And you don't realize it until you give that authority over to Jesus and you experience something different. And as I was talking about this, I was reminded of this passage in Matthew that really speaks to this. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's what Jesus promises. His authority over our life is much better than our own authority over it. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that you give us. Practical lessons, yes, but Lord, these spiritual lessons that we need to learn, our, our flesh works so hard to keep us from submitting to you, Lord. There's so much opposition to that. But Lord, I pray that we really would come to believe that you are a much greater Lord over our lives than we can be. You are good and we are not. And so Lord, I pray today that as we, as we read this, as, as we were convicted of things where we're not letting you be the Lord of our lives, that Lord, we would truly submit those to you. That we would be willing to hand those over and it's and to understand that it is as simple as that, to hand them over to you, Lord, that you will take those burdens. You will, you will take those things that we don't understand. You will, you will take the confusion and the weight away, Lord, and you will give us purpose and joy and peace. Lord, we love you for that. Lord, we most especially love you for your demonstration of what it means to be a spiritual leader, to hold spiritual authority, to be a humble servant as you were, Lord. 
We thank you for that example. We thank you that you don't operate the way that the world does. That you are so much greater, so much more loving, Lord. We thank you for that. We love you. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.